Thank you for listening to Buffalo What's Next on WBFO. Buffalo What's Next is on summer break and will return with new content shortly. As we take this break, please continue to tune in to WBFO Monday through Friday at 10 a.m. and 9 p.m. for producers' picks of some of our favorite episodes of Buffalo What's Next. How can we afford not to talk about race? About education. About segregation. About humanity. Since the dawn of this nation, racial violence has existed. The way we have designed our society has a big hand in what occurred in that Topps market. The suburban area everywhere, we must work and teach our children. We need to make sure that we put more funding in our programs that help prevent gun violence and more money into art. We're going to have some real healing. We've got to have space to tell some uncomfortable truths. On today's episode of Buffalo What's Next, we highlight three segments from three different episodes. Jay Moran explores the power of language and performance art with author, playwright, and retired professor Gary Earl Ross. I want to uh, just get to a couple of things here. In your writing, I heard you, uh, you did a little piece with, uh, I think it was with the Birchfield Penny. And you talked about how you wanted to make Buffalo a character and wanted to bring Buffalo to the world through fiction. Yes. Uh, expand on that just a little bit. Well, I write mystery novels in addition to writing plays, but um, most of my fiction these days is, is uh, in the mystery genre. And um, one of the things you'll know if you read a lot of classic mystery novels is that the city that um, a series takes place in frequently is a character. Um, I mean, you read the Maltese Falcon, San Francisco's almost as much a character as, um, as Sam Spade. If you um, read the Spencer novels, Boston is very much a character. Um, the uh, uh, V.I. Wachowski novels by Sarah Paretsky, Chicago is very much a character. And, you know, certainly um, if you go back to Mickey Spillane's writing in the 40s and 50s, New York is a character in the Mike Hammer novels. So I wanted to have something like that for Buffalo, where Buffalo would be a character. And I could use locations, real restaurants, parks, and, and other things. And mix in fictitious locations as well so that I mean I, I did have a confrontation in the first book Nickel City Blues that took place in the, in the first couple chapters at the Anchor Bar didn't result in a shooting or anything that happened at the Anchor Bar much later right which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but um, but I wanted Buffalo because I think Buffalo is a wonderful city it has issues it has problems but it's still a wonderful place to live. And I wanted to follow up on that then. So Buffalo as a character, since May 14th, what about Buffalo as a character? Have you seen something different about Buffalo since then? What I have seen, I think, is that um, there is a lot of good nature. Despite its many problems, the human race, I think, is basically good. We're stubborn as all get out. I mean, I heard someone this morning on the radio saying, it's nice here in Kentucky to see everybody helping everybody out in the, in the flooding. And I'm thinking, if you're caught in a flood, you don't care the color of the hand that reaches out of the boat to help you off that roof, right? Mm-hmm. All right, all right. <laughs> Why not consider that every hand that's out there could be a potential helping hand, or at least a hand that offers a gesture of goodwill? Why not? presume that before we presume the other stuff because um, 
you know, it, we shouldn't have a natural disaster forcing us to cooperate. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Right. so, but I, I see that in Buffalo. I saw a lot um, at the Tops Market, and I, and I will say that section of, of Jefferson was across the street from the um, um, library, the North Jefferson Library, replaced by the Merriweather, but the original building is still there and used for something else. That's the library where I fell in love with, where I fell in love with books when I was a child. And that was my old neighborhood. And it just broke my heart that, that something like this would happen there. So, um, so I think it brought out some of the positive um, feeling in Buffalo, but it also brought out an awareness that we have um, let some things go um, in our society and in Buffalo as well that we can't let go. They have to be addressed. It's interesting you talk about the, that neighborhood and your fond feelings for it as well. And that is something that has also come out a lot of the conversations we've had here in the studio since we began the show, just that, that there are these strengths inside that neighborhood that are totally overlooked, it seems, by by just the, the common knowledge of Western New York. Well, let me tell you a little about the neighborhood when I was a kid. Because segregation was the um, written law of the land in the South and the unwritten law of the land in the North, I grew up in a segregated neighborhood. But what happened in my neighborhood was that um, we had everybody. You know, there were welfare recipients in my neighborhood, but there were also doctors and lawyers in my neighborhood and teachers and office workers and plumbers and electricians. And the neighborhood was segregated um, racially, but it was economically integrated. And I think economic integration is something we need to strive for um, nationwide. And I, I can talk about that. But when the racial difficulties of the 60s, the civil rights movement, um, some riots in Buffalo had a couple comparatively small race riots, but they started to divide my old neighborhood because people who could afford to move to suburban homes now... <clears throat> They had the law behind them. They couldn't be driven out. Um, the uh, people who decided, who could afford to move, did. And one of the things that happened was that inner city neighborhoods began to have a bigger economic downturn when those who couldn't afford to move couldn't. And um, that was a divider that I think was crippling in the long run because what we have is a circumstance where if you're in a neighborhood and you see people who are like you in all ways, you don't see other options. If you're in a neighborhood where you see a variety of types of people, and you know, in, ter in terms of careers, we had people who, I mean, our doctor at one point basically lived around the corner. Dentists lived down the street. We, we, when we saw people like that, we had things to aspire to regardless of what we saw in our own homes. And I do believe that that is probably where the country needs to go um, so that if we have um, a housing development, say, a certain percentage should be low-income housing. You know, um, On the outside, people shouldn't necessarily know. But on the inside, you know, the more elaborate home might have the, the uh, stone 
um, countertop in the kitchen. And the cheaper home may have the Formica countertop in the kitchen. But they're both in the same neighborhood because, <laughs> I mean, and then people get to see, oh, what does he do? What does she do? What does their family do? And you get to learn about all kinds of other people. Um, I think economic integration is the way to go. And the problem with being money-based is that we want to create housing that will produce a large profit. And that needs to be tempered, I think, where we have houses for lower-income people. And, and a lot of lower-income people are not lower-income because they they are slacking off. I mean, one thing the pandemic has taught us is that a lot of these people are working in service industries and are necessary. The people at the grocery store who get paid a minimum wage, I think their minimum wage should, should go up. I think they need more, but they're, they're necessary. And right. we... Uh, I think the pandemic exposed that, and we have work to do. We're talking with uh, Gary Earl Ross this morning on Buffalo What's Next. Uh, thanks very much for joining us. We're back with uh, another program here uh, this morning. Uh, let's talk a little bit about um, language mm -hmm. when it comes to trying to understand race, understand racial situations as they stand today. What are your thoughts there? Language um, is a powerful weapon. And um, before I talk about visual language, uh, let's talk about words. Uh, for example, the N-word um, used to not be the N-word. It used to be a full-throated proclamation. It could show up in Huckleberry Finn. It could show up um, in the, on the lips of the person you're walking past if he decides that he doesn't like you. Um, and that usually he. It's <laughs> uh, a shame to say. Yeah. But... It was such a common word. I mean, you know the Agatha Christie novel, and then there were none. Right. The original title in England was Ten Little N-Words. Really? Yes, because there was a rhyme, the American title, Ten Little Indians. One little, two little, three little, same, gotcha. same sort of setup in hmm. England, but it wasn't uh, a thing. And it's a wonderful book, a wonderful mystery, but the title was a toss-off, and then there were none, is a much better title, and that's the one that it usually goes by now because publishers have gotten away from, they never did uh, in America, they wouldn't do 10 Little N-Words, which is why in the American edition <laughs> it was 10 Little Indians. Right. And, um, but, the, uh, but that language was a given without a problem because it was accepted. I mean, the N-Word has such a long history where you look at sheet music, Run, Mr. N-Word, run. You look at toys, the jolly N-Word bank. I mean, there, there are toys, there are sheet music, newspaper stories, articles, things that just created the impression that people of color were inferior. My first novel, which is not a mystery, it's an historical novel, Blackbird Rising, takes place in Buffalo in 1901. When I was, and Buffalo had 1,690 one or 81 blacks of that I, novel was published a long time ago but out of the city population the black population was fairly small one of the newspapers had covered an an appearance by a southern professor who was speaking in buffalo and talked about the negro being a threat to the white worker saying that how did he put it you can't compete with someone who will underlive a sewer rat Ooh. to survive, okay? Meaning 
we're talking free labor or close to free labor or cheap labor. And that, well, you can't do that. Well, the irony of that is that the language he used to inflame white workers against workers of color is the same language that slaveholders used to influence poor whites in the time of the Civil War to fight for the Confederacy because most of them couldn't afford to own slaves. There were exceptions for slave owners, so they, they didn't have to answer the draft the same way non-slave owners did. And I'm thinking the people who, like the shooter of tops who said, he believed in the, the Great Replacement, replacement Theory. theory. Which right. is it the, almost sounds like this professor from 1901. Yes, and that and that and that's how old this thinking is. And if you stop and think about it, if the man down the road has a huge plantation with slaves and he doesn't pay them to do his work and you don't have much of anything because people aren't paying you, if you thought about it for a minute, wait a minute, you could do some of the work they did. You could earn some money. But nope, the only thing you had going, well, at least you're a white man. That's the only thing going for you. And that system abused poor whites, not to the same degree it abused blacks, but it did abuse them and turn them against their neighbors. Where, And I, and I raised the question once um, in a conversation with someone. I said, suppose the South had won the Civil War, and then suddenly coal mining got to be a thing in Kentucky and Virginia and, and so forth. Said if they had slaves to work in their coal mines, do you think they would pay white miners to do it? Probably not. <laughs> so so the people were were supporting a system that not only oppressed people of color, but oppressed poor whites as well, telling them at least they were white, they had something to cling to. And that's the, the whole notion here. And the idea of replacement theory, it's dumb because this kid who came came up and shot up Buffalo. And I and I have connections to a couple of the victims that that I won't talk sorry about. One that. one had been a former student of mine, mm. and uh, one I think was the brother of someone. And my daughter has a friend who had a relative there. And it's like, wait a minute. Um, if you stop and think about it, you're 18, 19 years old. You're coming up to take out replacers. How did people in their 80s replace you? I mean, it's ridiculous thinking, but then ridiculous thinking is where we go with language. Most recently, a group of educators in Texas proposed changing the uh, the term slavery and slave with involuntary re- relocation. Involuntary relocation. Yes. Let's, let's say that because it's not as bad as slavery. And the thing is, and I hear this from Governor DeSantis and, and Governor Abbott of Florida and Texas, respectively. They're concerned about, quote, wokeness. They don't want to have history taught that'll make white children feel bad. I reject that notion. I want them to feel bad. I want all kids to feel bad, not to feel guilty because they didn't do it. I want them to feel bad. I want them to feel empathy. And one of the things that's happening with our attempt to, quote, stop wokeness, which is ridiculously stupid, is that it creates the idea that there are certain things you can't talk about because of emotional content, and we miss the point. Stories are necessary. Uh, I've done a a few lectures where I talk about the, the thing that separates people from animals is not the opposable thumb. It's not our capacity for talking. 
It's our capacity for story, because one of the things that happens with story is that we learn to empathize. If we take empathizing out of our equation, well, they sh people should know facts and figures. They shouldn't have a political perspective. Well, you can learn empathy without dealing with politics. One of my favorite stories, and and, and of course, <laughs> I'm drawing a blank on the author's name. Um, when I taught in the public schools, I taught a short story called The Soul of Caliban, which is now in the public domain. I think I'm going to make a recording of it. And that story dealt with a, a man who lived in the Northwoods kind of thing. He, uh, he had a dog. The dog was ugly and hideous from fights. And he married a woman, and they had a child. And she was always leery of the dog, leery of the dog around the child and so forth. And once they were both out of the cabin at the same time, um, without realizing the other was gone. And they got back, and they rushed in. The baby was alone. And they get into the first room of the cabin. They see the dog, Caliban, standing there, mangled with blood on his face. And the father, in a rage, takes his gun off the wall, shoots the dog. Then they go into the child's bedroom, and they find the baby behind the door. And by the baby's crib is a dead wolf. Your reaction is exactly the sort of thing we're supposed to have with empathy. I remember a student of mine, and her name was Kim. I won't give her last name. And she was in the eighth grade class. And when we did that story, and sometimes I liked to read aloud. Students had to read assignments, and sometimes I would read to them. She burst into tears. Mm. That's important. And I, and I, I remember her name because um, when my son was in Iraq, I had a piece appear in the news about being the father of a soldier. And she wrote to me. She had a son who was in the Marines and in Iraq at the same time. So I, I remember her from that. But that moment of empathy, of fellow feeling for another living thing, is one of the reasons we have stories. And we take empathy out of the mix. I mean, and I don't want to get political, but there's a awful lot about current conservatism that lacks empathy. And that gets to be a problem when we're trying to build a society where people respect each other and interact with each other. You've got to have some feeling about other people, just as you don't care when the hand that comes out of the boat and pulls you out of the flood, you don't care what color that hand is. You don't do that because you're scared, number one. And number two, the person reaching for you is not doesn't care what color you are either because that person is feeling the empathy of the situation. Here is a fellow living thing that is suffering or in trouble, and I'm in a position to help, so I must. You do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Author, playwriter, and retired professor Gary Earl Ross. In the wake of the recent public meeting held on June 20th in regards to the Kensington Expressway, we revisit Jay Moran's conversation with local elder Cliff Bell. I want to talk a little bit about the Kensington Expressway. I know you were among those attending that session by the DOT, taking a look at some of these concepts. Uh, you also know that neighborhood so very well, don't you? Uh, let, let's talk about your experience in the neighborhood that was initially interrupted or intercepted by the construction of the Kensington Expressway. When I first moved into this neighborhood, it was about 1957. And I've been living here ever since. I live on a sector near Sisters Hospital. And when I first moved in there, you could get access to my home by just coming up Fillmore, going over uh, Northland, right up to my back door. And when they built 198 West as a part of the expressway, 
they cut off my back uh, door and made my street a cul-de-sac. Now when you come to see me, you can go see me, go turn around to the end of the street and go on back out of there. So it's a, so it's a considerable uh, change in the way things are in that neighborhood. Uh, how did it change the neighborhood once that was built? You see, the neighborhood heretofore was flexible in that it had access to the other side of Humboldt Parkway, which also gave it access to Jefferson Avenue. And all those streets were cross streets, and the one that I live near was Oak Grove, and Oak Grove went right across uh, Humboldt into the other side where Headley and the other streets are behind Caduceus uh, College. And, uh, and, of course, that's where we went back and forth. In fact, I used to take my kids when we had a delicatessen across on the other side of Humboldt over there to get ice cream, and even on a sled, and you could go right across because it was a cross street. Heretofore, when the expressway was built, they only they disconnected all those side streets and left only East Ferry and uh, East Utica as major cross fares, and it's completely disrupted the whole community. There's just we got used to going back and forth across Humboldt to the other side toward Jefferson. Appreciate appreciate your perspective here because you have something that most people don't. You were there when the Kensington was constructed. Was there a thought initially? that it was for the for the best? Absolutely. There was no, and let me tell you something, plans were being made for this expressway without the knowledge of people that lived in the, in the inner city community. I had a brother that bought a home on Humboldt, and about a year and a half after he bought his home, they come out and were doing kind of, some kind of topographical studies telling him, you're going to lose three feet of your front of your lawn because we're going to build an expressway through here. They said, express what? Because when I first moved into my house, the median that ran from the Science Museum all the way to Delaware Park was a solid area that designed by Frederick Law Olmsted to be a continuation of his park design from Humboldt Park, which is now Martin Luther King Park, all the way to Delaware Park and the zoo. And it sounded like... I mean, I think you've kind of expressed this. You've described, you know, actually using a sled to, to get across and go down the street. But it sounds like it was a very walkable community, and you could get back and forth to various parts of the of the neighborhoods around Buffalo. Which was very important because, you know, there were a limited number of automobiles then, and uh, and there was a pretty decent transportation called Big Red then, which now is NFTA. It was, it was just an old... The old buses, but but they ran with some frequency, and people lived in community situations then, and uh, the communities were pretty solid. Uh, it's just that this was a complete disruption, and see, no one had any knowledge of this coming, but but the people that were pre-warned in advance that they was going to be building this expressway, if they wanted to sell their homes, they better be thinking about doing it now. So um, numbers of African-Americans bought those homes on Humboldt Parkway completely unaware there was going to be an expressway. Had no knowledge whatsoever. No pre-warning, no pre-advanced information. Well, is it encouraging then to see finally, after what, we're looking at, what, 60-plus years, yeah. uh, that there is, now it's the same, not the exact same people, but state officials, DOT officials are now looking to make good on that mistake. Uh, is it somewhat encouraging that it seems like they're listening to residents now? It's always encouraging. Advancement is something I never got in front of, 
in the way of rather. And sure, it's encouraging, and it, it's a great to go. I went over to the Science Museum. I looked at all those posters and all that they had of the uh, adjoining communities, and I'm familiar with all those streets because I was a council member at large for 12 years. So I not only was particularly familiar with the messengers where I've lived uh, most of my life, but I was familiar with the whole city and how things were going in other sectors of the city as compared to how things were going within the inner city. And it was a complete difference in the experience of either one and uh, what was needed and what wasn't getting done or what was getting done. So the expressway was a disruption. And sure, I think everything you ought to do to, to try it can never be reconnected. First of all, let's let's get, let's be clear. Right. The only way this is going to be a real win for everybody is if the surrounding communities get an opportunity for economic development, uh, job job opportunity, educational uh, direction, trade experience. It, it's more than just covering the expressway. So what? And who's going to go and do what over there on top of the expressway now? Picnic? Where are you going to go? We're always concerned about the environment, too, and we know that there's some preparations being made to, to kind of encompass all that, those fumes from the automobiles and all. But I've just seen just enough to tell me that there's something being planned to do. I really didn't leave the, the meeting with anything I could share with you about its, its plan, its purpose, or its goals and objectives. Uh, I'm not there yet. And Cliff, I want to just jump back because you brought it up and, and it's relevant to a story that's developing right now in Buffalo, and that is uh, the uh, reapportionment of the, of the Common Council. And I, you mentioned how you were an at-large member of the, of the Council, and we heard somebody earlier this week basically saying they were against the idea of eliminating those at-large positions. As you see it right now, what was the value of having an at-large council member? It was probably one of the most valuable positions simply because we didn't have to cater in particular to anybody. When I was elected at-large, I represented the total city of Buffalo. I went throughout the whole city of Buffalo and addressed people and talked with people about their concerns about their particular communities. And I also tried to get my, my fellow council people to prioritize development within the city. Let's do... Let's do a district at a time, and, and within a nine-year period, we'll have did considerable things to advance a particular district instead of splitting this thing up and dividing it and who gets this and who gets what. And it's, it's always, it seems to be a need to do those things to please the people that vote for you so that you can get reelected. That, wasn't, that didn't bother me from the beginning. Back to your thoughts about the the possible covering of the Kensington, you seem uh, skeptical about the idea. Let's say I'm going to wait and see. Yes, of course I'm skeptical. Anytime you do something that actually was a mistake when it was done from the beginning, do it the way it was done, and uh, there was no advantage to it except to get people out of town quicker and get them to the airport quicker. That was one of the original goals, but that, that street now, there's thousands of cars that go over the expressway. Nobody, nobody stops in the black community to do any business at all. So it hasn't been an advantage from that point of view. There's a lot of services that because they put all these big uh, outlying communities with multiple stores and all, that, that 
people find it's more convenient to go with this opportunity, but still within the black community, there's not still a whole lot of the services that are not available or not readily available. There's still not a whole lot of finance being circulated within the black community. There's still a lot of development that needs to be done on Jefferson, on Fillmore, parts of Main Street. So, you know, the job is still undone. There's challenges are there. God bless the governor, everybody else that's thinking about doing these things because they think it's creative and it kind of makes up for something that was done, but it has to be done carefully. And, you know, Brother Bell is not chicken anymore. I'm on, I'll be 93 this year, but yeah, I'm still active enough mentally and physically to want to see something done that's going to be beneficial to the total community and not just make uh Expressway a little more attractive or a little more acceptable to who? The, the people that when this was done, like me, there's not many people left around that were moved or directly affected by that when it was first done. So people have become, gotten in a habit of living with this now for the last 50 or 60 years. Now all of a sudden, after living with this and, and trying to find our way back and forth, and, and someone says, we're going to reconnect that community. I'm something. It's it's going to be it's going to be almost impossible, as far as I can see it. And uh, most certainly, with those ninety three years of experience, you have uh, something on on most of us in that regard. And you sound like you're 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 pretty much uh, thinking uh, thinking day to day about what's happening in the city of Buffalo. So let's maybe move just for a second beyond the Kensington. What could be what could be really impactful for? Uh, the the neighborhoods of the east side of Buffalo. Well, some some interesting ideas about how they can be built up so that it can be self sustaining. It's, it's difficult for a community if over half of the things that you need to get to or get done or get access to are not local, are not available to you within walking distance. The importance of the the store top store where, where this terrible incident took place. It, it was in a locale. It was convenient and offered the same or almost similar services as the other top stores throughout other communities. Not as big, not as well stocked and all at the time as others because the felt was, well, it's not that much demand. We'll, we'll put a market over there. It'll be okay, and the people will go there and shop. True. We could use another one, but we also could use some opportunities for employment, for development of businesses, which means we need there's a lot of help that's needed in education and opportunity that still to me is a little bit lacking. And then finally, Cliff, um, these conversations that we've been having here on WBFO on Buffalo, what's next? All coming out of that May 14th uh, tragedy at uh, the tops on Jefferson. Um, I'm just curious uh, with your experience. Do you sense the attention that has developed since then, that there's hope for that community, that there's hope that things are going to change for the better? I sense there's a little hope for the ability to communicate. See, one of the biggest problems we've always had in America, and it's not any different in Buffalo, is we have never communicated or had a conversation around slavery. And I don't care where you go or what you do, there's always an indirect relationship between what's been done today and what's been getting done for years. You know, Martin Luther King said all men are caught in a network of mutuality tied to a single garment of destiny, and that whatever affects anyone of us directly affects all of us 
indirectly. And he wants to say that nobody can be what they want to be until they're given the opportunity to be that person. And that's been repeatedly said, but it hasn't been used as a mentor for further development. Now, all the attention, all these beautiful people who, whose lives were sacrificed meaningless behind some hatred little mixed-up child who's not only out there singularly, he represents all millions of people today that have a similar feeling but wouldn't do the same thing that he did. And until people come to the place that we're all human beings, whether your color is black, green, or blue, we just can't get past black. It seems to be a hang-up that America can just not feel like they can escape. And it's been troublesome to me since I was born. Listen, I was born here in 1929 in Buffalo, in the front bedroom of 75 Monroe Street by a midwife, the sixth boy in my family to be born by a midwife. So I've been around. My father's a deacon of the church. I've been, I'm a deacon of the church now. And I've always had a great relationship with people. That's because I extend myself. And I'm curious about what you feel and how you feel about a relationship. That's important to me. I'm working now, finally, with the Olmstead Conservancy. I'm the chairman of the Buffalo African American Museum Committee, and we've developed a partnership where we're trying to make Martin Luther King Park and all of its assets a tourist destination. When we get through with the lighting and the signage and the, the apps and all, that place is going to be some. When they come to Buffalo, they're going to want to go to Martin Luther King Park because it's got such great value. Historically, physically, mentally. Well, Cliff Bell, we're going to use that as our final word on our segment of uh, Buffalo, What's Next? And I, I do thank you for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Listen, I'm always available with someone that's interested in talking about Buffalo's future. i got a few years left. I'm going to spend them as wise as I can. Local elder Cliff Bell. And to end today's show, we revisit our conversation with Executive Director of Partnership for the Public Good, Andrea O'Sullivan. Thanks very much for uh, joining us here. We have a lot to talk about because we're going to get into your community agenda, which is a massive undertaking that the partnership does every year on a variety of levels, both from input and then output. Well, let's just get into input just for a second. Um, the idea of how this community agenda is developed. Yes, great. So each year we are a partner network of about 300 community organizations and groups from block clubs to labor unions, theater groups, arts groups, environmental groups. Um, and we put out a call every fall for them to come together and bring to us what is the one policy change that would advance their work, that would advance a more just, sustainable culturally vibrant region. Um, and so they come together and bring to us ideas. Um, you can look on our website at many years of the community agenda. There are often priorities from housing to land use to police reform. Um, and each fall, the partners will come together and share those ideas, discuss them together. Um, ultimately, in December, they take a vote and the top 10 proposals in that vote become what we call the community agenda. But this time around, it became 11 uh, That is right. We have a tie occasionally, um, a tie in the votes where we take on an extra one. And that really drives what we, um, we call ourselves a community-based think tank, what we at Partnership for the Public Good work on that year. 
Um, we train the partners in working with the media, working with elected officials, doing community coalition work, and then we'll bring those priorities to most of the elected officials at the city, county, and state level to see what we can agree on and advance in that year. So 325 groups get involved in this You'd like to think that that's just about everybody, but I'm, is it open to other groups? I mean, are there others that are expressing interest to get involved as well? Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, we were not always 300 partners. Uh, that has grown each year, um, and we have a form on our website. You can look at a set of principles, which is really a vision for how we and our partners see Buffalo, Niagara, what are its strengths and challenges? What are assets to build on? What do we need to change? Um, and that's what you're signing on to when you become a Partnership for the Public Good partner. It's free to join. We have um, large formal nonprofits that are members. We have a few small businesses and cooperatives. We have um, volunteer efforts like block clubs. And so it's really a big range. And folks are certainly welcome to explore partnership and, and get in touch with us. Yeah, It's an, an exhaustive process for sure. But uh, one that's worthwhile in, ter- in terms of trying to bring as much community input into it as possible. At the same time, I'd like to think, and I think I can speak for uh, my colleagues here uh, at uh, Buffalo Toronto Public Media, that priorities changed on May 14th. Mm. And I'm curious about that, if if there has been any kind of shift or focus on some of these different elements inside this community agenda that have come out of some of the things we've learned since May 14th. Yes, um, I would say absolutely. And at the same time, what I find remarkable about our partner network um, and what really always happens when you listen to community leaders and neighborhood leaders doing work to build more caring, equitable communities at the very local level, those folks always know what the real long-term issues are. So while May 14th certainly brought uh, a more public and sharp focus onto issues of racial injustice and segregation. Those are the issues that our partners have been putting onto this agenda for many years now. Um, And so we saw the same thing in 2020. Um, That agenda that we launched at the start of that year focused on eviction prevention, food access, water affordability, all of that ended up the most critical issues of the year once the pandemic started. But our partners had already said these are really important issues. Um, So certainly we are, um, you know, doubling down our support for our partner organizations that are led by people of color, that are east of Main Street, um, and that focus on these issues of land, of food access, of how our city developed in a way that is still uh, quite divided. And one of the issues. There have been a lot of issues, obviously, that we've heard about since May 14th. But one that seems to continue to swirl through is the how is the city of Buffalo going to use this public property that they have at their disposal? We're talking about vacant lots, uh, things, uh, pieces of property that have been uh, given up by its previous owners for a variety of reasons, of course. And there has been, you can hear this in many different conversations with a lot of different perspectives about the concern there is inside some of those east side neighborhoods that we've really been focusing on here. So let's get into that because that is the number one thing on your community agenda, the uh, utilization of public land for public benefit. What's the focus or what was the focus when it came to the agenda? That's right. So thank you. So for many years, we've heard this issue um, from our partners who in the past were able to access vacant lots to build affordable housing, to create community gardens. And a few years ago, we started to hear 
across the board. It's getting harder for us as community groups or as nonprofits to access these these lots and especially to buy them so that we are able to keep up this good work for, for years ahead. Um, and so this last year, a, a task force formed that uh, is led by Grassroots Gardens of Western New York, several block clubs um, like the Greater Eastside Fields of Dreams Block Club, Coppertown Block Club, Filmer Forward, a, a lot of east of Main Street, and then uh, more garden groups as well. And they came together to say, you know, the city still holds uh, about 8,000 lots. 8,000. 8,000, um, which are publicly owned. We, we sometimes call them city-owned, but they are city-held, publicly owned lots. And what's going to happen to those? Can we work with residents, community groups, and nonprofits to have really a plan led by neighborhoods and residents of what will happen with this mass amount of publicly owned land within the city. Um, Those lots are concentrated in the Broadway Fillmore neighborhood with quite a few significant amounts also in the Maston district and some in the Ellicott district. Um, And many of these lots have already had community garden projects, youth projects, other, you know, food growing efforts that are led by local residents for years. And in some cases, um, the gardens now in the network of grassroots gardens have been maintained by residents, by senior citizens for maybe 20, 25 years. People that are beautifying their neighborhoods. That's right. Rather than have an empty lot, which we know can end up with grass uh, growing all over the place and all other yes, types of problems. Yes, and we see a lot of complaints about that. And I think our city council members receive a lot of complaints about that to their offices. So we should be really grateful that these community groups are already doing the work of beautifying their neighborhoods, of doing this maintenance. And so the question is, can they now gain ownership over this land? And that's where I think it raises some of the justice and segregation and ownership issues that May 14th has also raised when we look at how did we end up in such a segregated city. Um, you know, this is an issue where we should recognize the the work, the years of value that neighborhood residents have put into this land and create a process where community gardens and nonprofits can purchase the land that they're working from the city so that they don't have to worry that it will be sold out from under them. Um, that's the fear is, you know, the, these lots, again, there are 8,000 lots, so there are many, right. many available for development, but these lots that community folks already have an interest in can they purchase that to make sure um, it's not going to be, you know, suddenly sold off and taken away as such an important community space? I don't necessarily want to put you on the spot here, mm. but we do see in the Fruit Belt, the uh, uh, Fruit Belt uh, Community Land Trust. Yes. Can you walk us through that a little bit, how that might model might be able to work in other parts of the city? Because it sounds, again, kind of what we're getting into here, the idea that, this is public property. This belongs to the people of Buffalo. How can they determine how it would best help them? And is there, are there lessons in, in the Fruit Belt that we could maybe apply elsewhere? Yeah, that's a good question. And the Fruit Belt Land Trust has participated in this uh, public land task force as well. And, you know, in Buffalo, we have, I think, two great examples of land trust, grassroots gardens as a community garden land trust and the Fruit Belt as one that is working toward being a housing uh, land trust, uh, which is really focused on, again, uh, residents have been in the Fruit Belt in some cases for generations as the medical campus developed, as the city becomes more economically prosperous. 
are those long-term residents going to lose their homes because the neighborhood becomes less affordable to live in, taxes go up, it's harder to, to be there, um, or are they going to be able to stay? And so the land trust came together. Um, so many of our partners were involved and led on that effort um, from Open Buffalo, Push Buffalo. Many partners uh, came together and created the Fruit Belt Land Trust. Um, and I think they are in a real active conversation over the years of whether that could be applied to other parts of the city. Um, so it could be interesting to have them on to talk about that more as well. Right. Um, but certainly we see in other cities that that is a model that can be followed um, to put more and more of the vacant land either into public trust or into nonprofit and community ownership to make sure that it is used for public purpose and not only sold for private development. Um, And again, in a city where we have 8,000 lots, we're not saying no private development by any stretch. We're saying set aside a rather small percentage of that 8,000 lots for public purpose. At the same time, of course, the partnership is trying to, I think, and doing a nice job of getting everybody involved and making sure that there's appropriate pressure perhaps placed on certain parts of government or, or wherever you want to point the blame when it comes to things not moving along as quickly as we'd like. At the same time, it seems obvious that this land should be for the public benefit. Can you take us through as best you'd understand it? And I know I'm asking you to maybe speak for others, but what are the roadblocks? What are the roadblocks to keep this from happening? What what do you understand? Um, You know, the roadblocks, I think there's a few different parts of city government involved. There's different departments to engage. Um, And then I think there is just a question of imagination. Do we imagine that these neighborhood residents uh, can take care of these lots themselves? And to be frank, that's one hesitation that I have heard um, is, will these folks be able to care for this land in the long term? Um, You know, almost is there enough trust in our neighborhood residents to move this land to their control. Um, And that certainly is discouraging because, as I've shared in many of these cases, uh, these neighborhood residents have already been leading the way, doing this work, transforming lots, in fact, saving the city quite a lot of money, uh, maintaining them each year. Um, And there's a study I don't have with me, but that um, Samina Raja of the Buffalo Food Lab did a few years ago for Grassroots Gardens that added up the sweat equity. You know, how much were these gardeners actually saving the city um, by putting in this amount of beautiful work each year? Um, So I think it's both uh, practical issues of how would this be done? How have other cities done it? We have a lot of that research to share. um, And then it's also kind of a question of of will and imagination. Um, You know, who do we believe deserves to have ownership, deserves to have a say in what happens in their neighborhood? Um, and that's something certainly that this effort and as you've seen the the Fruit Belt Land Trust have in common by really saying it's the long-term residents who should have the strongest voice in setting the future of the places where they live. I, I know I may be jumping the gun a little mm. bit in terms of uh, the, the community agenda, but I think we're tying into something else that I'm also hearing a little bit about. The imagination that the east side, all this money that's going into the central terminal project, the, the the changing of the Kensington, it looks like it's coming, that all of a sudden we're going to see a gentrified portion of the east side of Buffalo that is going to perhaps you know, outpace the, the income of, of many of those community members. Again, back to the idea that we have this public land available um, that could be used for the public benefit. How, what 
is that, a, I guess, A, a justified concern, and B, are there policies that we can do in advance to keep that from happening mm. again? I mean, everybody wants to see the city improve. We don't want to see poor people getting pushed out of their homes. That's right. So, you know, I think that's always happens when you have big investment coming in. Um, there's nothing like big outside money to distort the plans that residents have had, um, you know, to, to bring a lot of questions in. On the other hand, um, you know, reform in those areas that you mentioned is something that many community groups have wanted for years. Right. So I think it comes down to who will get the say on what happens at a place like the Central Terminal or what happens to the expressway. Um, will it be outside consultants and, you know, experts? We talk a lot about experts in public policy work, um, but who are the real experts? Is it outsiders that we bring in who maybe have done this elsewhere? Or is it folks who live in the neighborhood, who walk that land every day, um, who have spoken with a few generation of kids of what they would like to see? Um, you know, so we really try to redefine who is an expert, who has knowledge that matters, and make sure that those folks are being listened to um, at all levels. So, yeah, I, I don't live east of Main Street, and I would certainly defer to the leaders there and the community groups and block clubs there for the vision that they have. Um, and also for you know, the current conflict of this is great to have such an influx of money, but it does raise concerns for how it will be realized over the years. And uh, before we uh, go to break, we're going to take a time out here in just a little bit. But just um, from your perspective uh, with the Partnership for Public Good, are you encouraged by the level of participation that you've been seeing? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think... It was so interesting in 2020, like everyone else, we shifted to working remotely um, for a community network to lose in-person conversation, community meetings, community dialogue in person was a really big deal. We never saw more participation than in that year. And of course, the summer of 2020 um, with the mass calls for racial justice and police reform. Um, and that has really continued, I think, for us and for many of our partners and block clubs, we see um, such a hunger. Perhaps the pandemic helped us to see how important neighbor-to-neighbor uh, -neighbor conversation and exchanges, and we see really more participation than ever. A lot of the things that we've been hearing out of some of these neighborhoods, especially on the east side, when it comes to getting investment from banking, public banking. Explain public banking and how perhaps maybe this might be something that could help out some of these neighborhoods that, um, I mean, it's no, I'm not telling tales out of school, have been victims of, of redlining throughout the years. Absolutely. So this uh, priority was brought to us by the Buffalo Niagara Community Reinvestment Coalition, which is housed at the Western New York Law Center. Um, and that coalition, in its previous work for many years, has worked toward community uh, reinvestment, community benefits agreements with banks in our region. So, you know, how can we make sure um, where not only we as residents are putting our money, but indeed where our municipalities are storing their public funds in corporate banks, that some of that benefit comes comes back to us. Um, there is a bill uh, in the New York State Legislature called the New York Public Banking Act that really takes that to a whole step further and says um, municipalities, cities, counties, regions in New York State should be enabled to create public banks so that the, those governments can store their own public funds in these banks. And that way, 
the profit made off of those uh, funds could be invested into small businesses, affordable housing, green infrastructure right in that city or region. And we're not kind of losing the, the potential interest and profits of our public money to corporate shareholders, right? We're bringing it right back. So this is a really interesting one. Um, I know that we have held in partnership with the Law Center um, a couple of workshops to discuss what is public banking, yeah. right? It sounds like a, a novel idea or even a throwback idea. Um, and so those conversations continue. And on some of our priorities like this, we really are providing the Buffalo or Western New York input to a statewide um, campaign. So this is a statewide effort to bring public banking uh, to New York State. And and we're really there as the Western New Yorkers to say, well, this is how it would work here. Maybe the state bill should be amended in this way. So that's another role that we'll play when partners bring a state-level policy priority to us. But the goal, though, is to allow for money to be perhaps invested into parts of the city where that aren't always getting the investment that they need. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know, you know, many of our local banks, I will say, are working to make progress. And at the same time, um, when our when we pull up the data on where mortgage lending is happening in our city, as I'm sure you've seen, um, you know, in some recent years, it seems unbelievable, but there is virtually no mortgage lending um, in some east of Main Street neighborhoods, right? So almost none. And so that's really certainly what the Buffalo Niagara Community Reinvestment Coalition would like to see changed in the big picture. And as as you've said, it's really part of the story of redlining. How did our neighborhoods end up so segregated? Um, And we really need to bring new investment um, into neighborhoods that have really been denied capital. Uh, You know, homeowners uh, in East Buffalo have have really not even been able to get loans to fix their roof in a lot of cases, right? So really common sense uh, way to make sure that neighborhoods, uh, folks have the capital to maintain their own homeownership and their own neighborhoods. But this has to be done on the state level. Well, that would be the first step at the at this right. point. Right, you'd have to get a um, law. You'd have to get the law changed to allow it to happen. Right, municipalities in New York State don't have the the legal authority to create a bank, and this would change that where they could. And just to also mention, because we've talked about this off air, the partnership has had success in changing state laws. That's right. Um, we have been part in recent years of, you know, again, big statewide networks with large coalitions here in the city, but um, of changing, winning the Climate and Community and, uh, Protection Act. Uh, we have been part in the past of land bank and, and many kind of green, complete streets, environmental law efforts, and then quite a bit of justice reform as well. So we've been part of um, the effort to reform solitary confinement, which led to the halt solitary law passing, too. There's 11 points on the community agenda. We're not going to get into them all right now, but that's okay because I, I, I think what we've been able to focus on here right off the bat are the ones at the top. Number four, the forgotten population. The forgotten population. What's the forgotten population? Yes. Yeah, so this issue was brought to us uh, by Leah Angel Daniel, who has a organization called Fostering Greatness. And she says that the forgotten population is foster care, youth and young adults. Mm. So 
not necessarily young people who are in foster care, but folks when they are hitting 18, 21, as they start to what's called age out of the system, what happens during that transition? What support are they given? Um, And Leah is a graduate and alumni herself of foster care. And so she has seen firsthand um, that they are really missing supports not only to help them thrive as they go out into independent life after foster care, but to be frank, just to keep them safe. And she has shared with us stories of young people who, once their days in foster care is over, end up in very precarious and dangerous living situations because they're not able to find an affordable place to live. Um, So, you know, this is another one. Very often, Our partners will bring us priorities and part of our work as the kind of, uh, you know, policy nerds, to be quite (laughs) frank, is to say, um, you know, what level of government is responsible for this issue? And so foster care is handled by the county um, and, and, you know, they have so many resources for the foster care system overall. But again, what happens to the young adults as they graduate? There are some transition programs, but Leah and Fostering Greatness would say, particularly for the youth in the city of Buffalo, um, they could really use more services for housing support, employment development, skills training. Um, and it's a little bit of a gap in the government system because the city has no Uh, official remit specific to foster care or foster youth. So we're really just encouraging some city departments to see that this is an overlooked population within the city of Buffalo and that those foster care graduates in particular out of the whole county, the ones that are resident in the city, could use more support. Another piece that we do is often gather the data because that's something we had to ask at the start of this year. What is the population? How many young people graduate each year? Um, And very often that's hard to get. So we do a lot of work to get that. But I think um, it's not a small population. And at the same time, it's not huge. It's not beyond our reach. You know, if we supported 50 foster care youth graduates a year with more targeted support, that would make a huge difference. So it's I think it's not beyond our reach. It is doable. And that will do it for today's Summertime Producers Pick episode. We would like to thank our guests, Professor Gary Earl Ross, Cliff Bell, and Andrea O'Sullivan. If you miss anything and you'll like to hear it again, a reminder that this program is a podcast. You can get it wherever you get your podcasts or the new Amplify BTPM app. And each episode is also online on demand at WBFO.org. This is WBFO and WBFO HD1 Buffalo, WOLN Olean, and WUBJ Jamestown, your NPR station. This is Charles Gilbert. Thanks for listening. David Fordham, and over the last 20 years, I've gone through libraries, archives, old museums, and interviews with the elderly to get the stories that have been seldom told elsewhere, and I've collected them into four books, a newspaper column, a radio show, a YouTube channel, travels around the country, uh, courses that I teach, and this tour called If These Streets Could Talk, The Lost Stories of Black Charleston. begins in 1526 with King Ferdinand of Spain, who sent an explorer named Juan Lucas Vasquez de Alion to the shores of what we now call Georgetown, South Carolina, 50 miles to the north of us. And he brought with him a boatload of Spaniards as well as Africans. Well, he set up what he called the colony of San Miguel Guadalupe, which was short-lived 
because Juan Lucas Vasquez de Allion died early in the voyage, and he left behind an incompetent administrator who was so bad that the Africans rose up and killed him. Not only was this the first known slave rebellion we have on record in North America, it was the first one that had any success. So the Africans then fled into the interior, where they blended into the Native American population and married a number of them, and their descendants are believed to be among the black people of Georgetown, South Carolina today. So the surviving Spaniards then sailed back to Spain, and they filed a report with King Ferdinand, which can today be read in a book called Yes, Lord, I Know the Road by J. Brent Morris, which is the source of this story. So 150 or so years later, King Charles II of England colonized this area, and being the humble, modest, and unassuming guy that he was, he named this place Charlestown. Real creative, right? So the next year, Captain Nathaniel Sale sailed from England on a ship called the Three Brothers. And on the way here with a bunch of settlers, they stopped in Barbados, where they purchased three Africans who were given the English names of John, John Jr., and Elizabeth. Needless to say, we don't know their African names. So they ended up here on these shores in April of 1670, and that was the beginning of slavery and settlement in the Charleston area.